0: This morning we will return to Colossians chapter 1, and we will continue in the section we started some time ago, uh, two sermons ago. Uh, It really is part of a a single section, and today I'll try and stitch some of it together as I get into verses 18 to 23, which uh, which will be the text uh, subject for this morning as we learn how Paul deals with the church at Colossae. But before we go to the sermon, let's have a word of prayer. Father, we thank you this morning again for all your grace to us. We thank you this morning again for your goodness, your kindness, your love toward us. But we also thank you, Lord, for being the God that you are, a just a holy and a righteous God, a God in whom we can trust. We pray this morning, Father, as we open your word, that you may grant us minds that are not disturbed by the distractions around about us, about things from the past week or the one that's coming. Grant us grace, Lord, to have ears that will listen and hear and take in what you have to say to us. Grant us hearts that are obedient so that your word, as it reaches our hearts, may find fertile soil, take root, and bring about change in our lives. We know it was because of your word that we found eternal life. And it's because of your word that we're able to live daily in this new life that you have given us. We pray for your blessing upon hearers and speaker alike, and that all that we say this morning may glorify your most holy name. We pray this in Jesus' name and for his sake alone. Amen. This morning, the subject title or the title of the sermon is The Supremacy of Christ in the New Creation. And it really is going to be based mainly in Colossians 1, verses 18 to 23. But I do want to remind ourselves of where we have come from when we looked at verses 15 to 17, or that leads directly into where we're going to be this morning. And so, in the last sermon, we saw that verse 15 to 17... Doubt with the supremacy of Christ, or the Son, as he is referred to in this portion, in the role that he played in the original creation of all things. And alas, last, I didn't include that adjective and descriptive term of original creation, but it is an account of the original creation, when all things were brought into being, as is recorded in Genesis 1. We consider the fact that when we see him, In the last sermon, we see the Father. For verse 15 says, he is the image of the invisible God. And those are things we applied our mind to as we considered what this meant. We saw that it was in keeping with the statement, or with the statement about himself, that this is true. He knew that he was the only representative of an invisible God. In John chapter 14, verse 9, he says, Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us a Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak of my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me. And so he truly is the image of the invisible God. And when, we, when people saw Jesus, when his disciples looked on him, When the people in and around Galilee looked on Jesus, they little realized they were looking on God. When they saw Him, they saw the Father. The very opening clause in the section of chapter 1 places the Son in a unique relationship to the Father. And the very next phrase in verse 15 identifies the Son as having authority equal to the Father. And that phrase is the firstborn of all creation. We saw that the firstborn was significant in that it emphasized authority and supremacy, not a sequence in creation. He wasn't the first to be born, the first to be created. We we spent some time at length to emphasize this firstborn title signifies that he is supreme, that he has authority which is uniquely his, and that because of his authority and supremacy all of creation takes its meaning. It is therefore clear that the original creation was a collaborative work within the Godhead. The language of Genesis one and two clearly indicates an agency of plurality, there were more than one person involved within the create, cre- work of creation in Genesis one and two. And this is further supported uh, in John chapter one, verse one, where it states, "In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning." with God. These verses clearly show that there are two persons depicted as having a very unique relationship to each other. And it, in John, it again reminds us about that link as it goes back to the beginning. They simultaneously occupied the same timeless dimension, simply called the beginning. They simultaneously shared the same nature. The Word was God. And they were simultaneously distinct in their personhood, in a face-to-face Relationship with each, with each other. And so not only was he God, but he was with God. And then verse 3 says this in John chapter 1. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. And the Apostle John identifies the essential role of the Son in creation, right there in the first chapter. Which is in complete harmony with what Paul writes in, Col- in Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 to 17, about 30 years before the writing of John. So there was nothing new to the minds of those who were disciples of Jesus. But that was uh, how we looked at the original creation. And that was how we looked at how things came to be in Christ, and through Christ, and because of Christ, and was held together by Christ. But this morning, we want to look at the new creation. As we segue out of verse 15 to 17 into 18 and 23, there is a shift. A shift that in some ways is almost indistinct, And in other ways, very different. This brings us to verses 18 to 20, which we will read together. Verse 18 of Colossians 1. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And as we read verses 18 to 23, we see striking similarities between that section and one that's just gone before. There is this this repeated phrase, He is. Verse 15, He is the image of the invisible God. Verse 17, He is before all things. Verse 18, He is the head of the body. Verse 18 again, He is the beginning. So there's similarities in language between these two sections that Sometimes says, well, there's not much difference to consider. There's the mention of his status as firstborn. Verse 15, the firstborn of all creation. Verse 18, the firstborn from the dead. And so again, two concepts that we have developed out of this term or this this status of firstborn appears in both. Firstborn of creation and firstborn from the dead. There are the all things phrases which again permeates this entire section. By him all things were created, verse 16. All things were created through him, verse 16. He is before all things, verse 17. In him all things hold together. And in verse 18 a changes slightly. It says in everything he might be preeminent. So he is preeminent in everything, in all things. And in verse 20 to reconcile to himself all things. And so... These similarities, again, draw us to, um, to, to see how this is drawn together by Paul. And in fact, all of these similarities has led, uh, amongst other things, to cause men to think this was a hymn. Something that was structured in a way which had a lot of parallelism through them. And we need to just look at some of those perhaps this morning. There were the similar prepositional phrases, by him, through him. In him, and so this parallelism, this parallelism between these two passages cannot be ignored. It is this that may cause when to see this as a hymn, as I said. And so many have thought it as a hymn. I haven't tried to preach it as a hymn. I think there's a lot of debate as to how this came about, uh, what it is, and so that doesn't that doesn't recognizing as a hymn doesn't add or detract from what is being taught. I think that is more important. We focus on what Paul is teaching right here because in the section he's teaching now. In verses 15, right down to the end of the chapter, he's preparing him for what is going to be coming from chapter 2, chapter 3, chapter 4. And he's going to get quite into the problems that exist at Colossae, but he's establishing a framework, a foundation, which will become the point from which he launches all of his arguments. And while this 15-17 transitions easily into verses 18-23, this seamlessness conceals a significant reality. The events, as recorded in verse 17, verse 17 uh, ends about all things being held together by him, really is a reflection of what happened in Genesis chapter 1, and it's that uh, original creation in perfection. And the events, as recorded in verse 18, uh, brings about to understanding the existence of the church and his resurrection. And between those two verses is 4,000 years. Those two verses are separated by a a record of history of 4,000 years. In verse 15 and 17, we have the record of the original creation, a perfect creation. A work carried out uniquely by Christ. The creation was viable only because of his links to the Creator. The existence of everything depended on him. He was the glue that kept things together. Verse 17, uh, the, the second section of that. There is a cohesion between the Son and the creation that is impossible to miss. When we get to verses 18 to 23, it becomes obvious that the breakdown in this cohesion has occurred. There's an obvious contradistinction between these two sections by the words that are used. Whereas once everything was glued together in Christ, now we see words like reconcile. Things only have to be reconciled if they have been pulled apart. We see words like alienated. We see words like hostile something has drastically changed between verse 17 and verse 18. And that change is a record of 4,000 years of history. History we all know about. Genesis 2 ends with creation being very good. When God had created everything, and when everything was before him, and when by the time he created man, he looked over his whole entire creation, and before he instituted the day of rest, he said, everything was very good. Genesis 3... <coughs> And it records the entrance of sin into a perfect condition. So, right there, a shift has taken place. And in Genesis 3, we find that we come face to face with sin and with Satan and the deception of Adam and Eve. We come to the fall of man, the pronouncement of the curse because of sin, and the banishment of mankind from the presence of God. And we know in our minds, those of us who have read Genesis often enough, we see this uh, picture as God places an angel with a flaming sword, uh, preventing man from ever coming back into that paradise. But God is not done with man. In a sense, man may be done with God, because man had now become a sinner, and had no longer had a relationship with God. But God was not done with man. He chooses a man, Abraham. He chooses a family, the family of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He chooses a people, the people of Israel, from which will come a promised son to redeem mankind back to God. Man has been lost, paradise has been lost, but God is determined to regain man under his own conditions. Eventually in the process of time, in due time, a child is born. In due time, a son is given, and God comes to dwell with man, Emmanuel. That son was born of a young virgin girl, who has been given conception by the Holy Spirit, that son came to reconcile a lost sinful people to a just and holy God. That was the reason why he came. That those who were lost could be found. Those who were dead could be given life. Those who lived in darkness could be given a life of light. That son, and only that son, could bring about a reconciliation between the creator and his creation. And that son, as we all know, is Jesus God had established a way to bring about reconciliation, and that was by the shedding of blood. Man lost his, his, his relation with God on his terms. He disobeyed. He disobeyed God. He disobeyed a clear command. And because of that, he fell into sin. An entire human race who have come from the loins of Adam are born sinners. And God is determined and was determined to restore some to himself. But that was on his terms, and his terms was on the shedding of blood. Romans chapter 5, verse 8. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his Son, much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Jesus came so we could be reconciled to God. Reconciliation was not the only aspect of what he did, but it was part of an aspect of God's redemptive plan of the work of salvation. As he, Jesus Christ, poured his blood so that we sinners could be reunited with a God who was and is our creator. But having died, Jesus did not remain dead. On the third day, he rose from the grave in triumphant glory. And that really, in a nutshell, is the gospel. If you have never heard it before, you've heard it now, that Jesus came, that he died, and he was raised again. And it's because of his resurrection power that he establishes his church. He establishes this body, the church, whose very existence is dependent on a risen Lord Jesus Christ. For we have reminded ourselves, as Paul does teach us, and if Christ had not been risen, we are of all people most to be pitied. Without the risen Christ, we have nothing. Without the risen Christ, the church has no meaning. Without the risen Christ, it is a headless corpse. Without the risen Christ, the church cannot do what the scriptures say it is able to do. He is the head of the church. And that is why in Colossians 1 verse 18, Paul says exactly that. He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. The resurrection of Jesus Christ, which you're going to celebrate in two weeks' time, is no small event. It's not something that may or may not have happened. And as you engage with people who claim to say they know something about this, they will give you many stories, most of which are spurious. But today there are many religions, many faiths, many people of faith, many spiritual people who all claim that they have a a person they follow and they take time to spend pilgrimage at their tombs. They revere their bones. They want to pray over their corpses. We can't do that. It's impossible for Christians to do that. There is no corpse. There are no bones. There is no shroud. There is nothing because the tomb was empty on the third day. He arose from the dead. And because he has been risen from the dead, he's able to give life to a body called the church. He is the head of this body called the church by the power and based on the, the efficacy of his resurrection. He's the head of the body of the church. He's the beginning of the first one from the dead and that in everything he might be preeminent. Paul moves from the supremacy of Christ over all creation to his supremacy over the church. And he says it by saying he is the head of the church. The reader is moved from the cosmos to the church, the church which is defined as a body. And this body metaphor is used often by Paul and he uses it very effectively as he conveys the community of people who live together in harmony. And we know, as we read the account in Corinthians, how the body's got to work together, otherwise the body becomes dysfunctional. There are many doctors with us this morning they can tell you what a dysfunctional body looks like and how much overtime it gives them as they need to deal with the problems of dysfunctional bodies. You and I know about the dysfunctionality of our bodies and those of us who are also getting older become more dysfunctional than others. But praise be to God, it won't be long. Brother, we'll be going home, so. Lord is coming. We are dependent on each other. that's exactly the metaphor of the body. The body is an interdependent um, uh, organism that cannot function. It, not, if It even doesn't function together. We serve each other. And this is a metaphor Paul has used in an early epistle. We see in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. And more significantly, in this very epistle, when we get to chapters 3 and 4, we'll see what a harmoniously, functioning body looks like. Paul is going to take this church and... As he as he addresses the, the incoming um, fallacies, um, heresies that's coming to the church, he's going to remind them that they are a body that works together in harmony, and he's going to lay upon them commandments, instructions to show what they should be doing to keep this body working harmoniously, so that the head that they serve may be honored and glorified. But in verse eighteen, we are told that there is a body, and the the head of the body is Christ. It's important not to lose sight of the redemptive aspects of this epistle. So all we see up till now, we have repeated more and more uh, the fact that this, this epistle is couched in the redemptive language, this gospel language. Paul has already stated in verse 13 and 14 that he, the Father, has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. So Paul has already established a redemptive theme. A gospel story. Colossians chapter one verse twenty says, "And through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross." Colossians two verse thirty, which we will get to eventually. And you who were dead in your trespasses and in, and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having given us all, having forgiven us all our trespasses, by canceling the record of debt. It stood against us with his legal demands, this is set aside, nailing it to the cross. This is the gospel, the gospel that leads to salvation. And the gospel permeates Colossians in the, in, in the first chapter, in the first two chapters, much around the base of the gospel. And as we get to chapter 3 and 4, the effects of the gospel in the lives of those who are part of this body of which Christ is the head the gospel that is essential for the placing of those saved by faith in the body, the church, and it's the gospel which is the foundation for sanctified living. And just as all of creation was placed under the supreme authority of Christ by virtue of him being the firstborn of the dead, in the same manner, his body, the church, is placed under the supreme headship of Christ by virtue of him being the firstborn from the dead. Verse 18b, he is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything... He might be preeminent. And just keep in mind that word, everything. As we saw earlier, Siddharth brought a separation between God and his creation. God has not lost control. I know to many of us it looks like this world is out of control. But as far as man has his hand in it, as long as he's got his finger in the pie, there will be chaos and dysfunctionality and loss of control. But God has not lost control. Of his creation. Even in his fallen state. Even in the, in the way it is now moving ahead to destruction. At so many different levels. And ultimately to be judged. God is still in control. He simply could not have a relationship with the, simple, with the sinful creation. While he's in control. This relationship with the sinful creation. Has been broken. And he cannot. He cannot have a relationship with sin. Something had to change. But nothing creation could bring about a change. God had to provide the means of change and to bring about the reconciliation that would glorify Him. And this He accomplished through His Son. Verse 19, For in Him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. The Father and the Son are co-workers in bringing about reconciliation. We have no part to play in being reconciled to God. We don't drag ourselves back to God. We don't invite God in to become part of our lives. We don't open a door so he can walk in. We don't meet him on our terms. We don't make the terms. We have no power to meet with him. When we stand before him, all we can do is die. Because of our sinfulness and our shame. But he is the one who accomplishes reconciliation in and through his son. In the original creation, the son's authority is made evident in that he alone is able to reveal and represent the father who is invisible. And here again in verse 19, the unbreakable bond between the Father and the Son is evident in that all fullness of God was pleased to dwell in Him. And this is how the Father and the Son works together. The Father and the Son are working together in creation and now in the new creation and ultimately in ushering in the eternal state. Verse 20, And through Him, this is speaking about the Son, and through Him, To reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. So I said to you earlier, hang on to that word, all things. Reconcile to himself all things. There are two aspects of reconciliation to consider. Number one, there's a reconciliation of creation. And number two, there's a reconciliation of the church. Both have to be reconciled, and both are reconciled, in and through Christ and based on his work on Calvary. In verse 20, we have the first aspect, the reconciliation of creation. We really think about reconciliation as a process by which people are reconciled to God through salvation. That we are comfortable with. We, think it, we must speak about reconciliation. We think about ourselves being reconciled to God. But it was not only people who were alienated from God, all creation became alienated because of the fall. Genesis 3, verse 17. And to Adam, God says... Because you have listened to the voice of your wife, and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Romans chapter 8, verse 20. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption, and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together, in the pains of childbirth until now. Sin has affected everything in creation. No part of creation was left untouched. That simple act of disobedience, that simple act of disobedience that led to partaking of a fruit that looked tasty and nutritious, that simple small step of doing something when God do not do it, did not only affect the human beings in the garden, did not only affect everyone who came from their loins, but affected the entire creation. And so we live in a creation that is in a fallen state. And even though we look at the beauty of the mountains and the power of the sea and the greenery of the meadows, this is still a fallen state. It's nothing like the Garden of Eden. Sin has affected everything in creation. No part of creation was left untouched. Which is why it required that Christ reconciled to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven. And this brings to us a a thought which we won't be able to develop now, but we probably will do later on. There are things both on earth and in heaven that need to be reconciled to God because of sin. And this is why it was required that He shed His blood on the cross. So working backwards from the cross, we find the blood of the cross provided a peace that could only be purchased by His death. That peace made it possible for all things to be reconciled to the Creator. Without blood being shed, there could be no peace. And without peace, there could be no reconciliation. Striking words are found in a hymn. Year my sin and curse was drowned, redemption here obtained. Here the peace once lost and found, and life eternal gained. Died upon the cross in him, Atonement for my sin I see. Weeping with each lifeless limb for enemies, for me. Without the shedding of the blood on the cross, there could be no peace. Without peace, there could be no redemption, no reconciliation. Without reconciliation, we could never have become children of God and one day appear in His presence without sin, without guilt, without shame, as those who are His own. Those who have been brought by His Son and become like sons to Him. Verse 20, And through Him to reconcile Himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. But that's not the only aspect of reconciliation that Paul deals with here. He also deals with the reconciliation of the church. Verse 21. And you who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. Verse 23, if indeed you continue in the faith stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. Verse 21 changes the focus of the work of reconciliation, and we see that by the change of inclusion of a second person pronoun. Just look at verse 21, and we find that Paul uses the word year which makes this something that we can see applied directly and completely to us. He says, and you were once alienated and hostile. And in order to present you holy and blameless, the end of verse 22. Verse 23, if indeed you continue in the faith. At the end of that same verse, the hope of the gospel that you heard. And so... Paul introduces this word you, as pronoun you, to show the Colossian church that not only was the creation reconciled to him, by him, and for him, and in that section, there is no mention of any second person pronoun, but here, he changes the focus, and we see the change by the inclusion of this pronoun, that you is those who believe and were saved. This is the aspect of reconciliation we see frequently elsewhere in, in scripture. We see this and we take this very often for granted. Too so often we take this in such a way that we don't think much about it. But it tells us that we who were alienated, we who were estranged, we were separated from God, had to be reconciled. And how were we alienated? We were alienated, hostile in mind, doing evil deeds. Our condition from conception. You and I are alienated from God, not because we do bad things, but we do bad things because we are born in alienation from God. Listen very carefully i speaking especially to those of you who are younger, those of you who are able to understand what I'm saying, those of you who have parents who are saved and you think that maybe because they are saved, you are saved. Those of you who are able to know that when you are doing something and it's wrong, you realize it's wrong, and so you lie to your parents, you hide it from your parents, you do something and you blame your brother or your sister. You know as a child that you do wrong things and you can't help yourself. That's because you were born in alienation to God. You were born a sinner before God. You were born in such a state that you cannot do things to please God. And sometimes you find a chance to please your mom and your dad or whoever's your guardian. But very soon you do more wrong that eliminates all the good you could do. And ultimately you find yourself doing things wrong and wrong and wrong. So as you grow into adolescence and become an adult and you find your life is wrapped up in yourself and you figure out for yourself that one day soon I'm going to try and get right with God, you never can because you cannot get right with God because being conceived in sin. You took the blood of Jesus Christ, God's Son, the only one born and conceived without sin, one conceived by the Holy Spirit, so that he was born of a virgin woman, a young girl who knew no man, and <clears throat> so when he was born, sin had no hold over him, and he was able therefore to die for sin, become sin for you and me, so that we, be, we could become the righteousness of God through Him. So our condition of alienation and hostility is because of our conception. Sin affected both our thinking and our actions. What we think and what we do is affected by sin. And that is done continually. We do not have a free will to choose to do right. We can only choose to do wrong. And some things we do are good And some things we do bring benefit to others, but ultimately when it comes to our salvation and things that pertain to God and things of eternity, we can only choose that which is wrong and bad and evil. We do not have a free will of choice when it comes to our salvation. Our, Our worlds are in bondage, in bondage to sin and under the power of Satan. As we live our lives daily doing what we choose to do, not realizing that our will a fallen world, a world within a fallen nature, is diverse those choices. Sin affected the way we think and the way we act. We heard this morning how men's minds uh, is the hotbed of confusion, of deceit, and of iniquity as men try and think their uh, ways out of uh, the condition and think themselves into a state of a perfection. It cannot happen. Your mind is depraved, your body is sinful and you have been conceived in sin, your thinking and your actions are continually against God. And number three, our alienation hostility kept a permanent barrier between God and ourselves that no ordinary human being could scale. No one could get beyond this barrier between God and ourselves. You don't see it? It's not a brick wall. It's not an electric fence. It's not a high mountain. But it's bigger and higher and more powerful than all of that. And our sin has kept us separated from God, and therefore we are hostile and alienated to him. We are aliens at this moment in time, spiritually, to God. We are not part of his people. And so, Paul says that uh, reconciliation was required because we are alienated and hostile in mind and doing evil deeds. But he says he is now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death. He has reconciled us by his body of flesh by his death. An extraordinary human being stepped into the battle for us. A being that was unlike us in every way and yet like us in so many ways. He was a man as all men. He came born in the body as we have it. He lived amongst men as a man. He he grew tired. He grew hungry. He grew weak. He suffered. He died. When he was pierced, he bled. And so as a man, he lived and died as a man, but he was no ordinary man. He was an extraordinary human being. And he stepped into battle for us so that he could reconcile us in his body of flesh by his death. His means, this was his means of bringing about reconciliation uh, for us. It was by enduring unbearable physical suffering in his body of flesh. It was by submitting himself to the death of the the hands of uh, a holy and righteous judge. Peter is very clear when he speaks to uh, the rulers of the day. He says, you with wicked hands, crucified and murdered Christ. He blazes the blame squarely at their door. He accuses them and makes it clear to them that the death of Jesus Christ was an accident. It was at their hands and he calls them murderers. But Jesus died at hands far greater than just the rulers of of Israel. He died facing a righteous and holy judge. It was God's desire to see his son die, so that we could be reconciled to him. And in a way which we can never explain, a way which we find difficulty to comprehend, a way which we use language which sometimes is not right, but all that we can say that the, the reconciliation that was required for us brought a break, in some sense, to the father and son, at the time when he could cry, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? We're not told that God turned his face from him, We're not told that Jesus stopped being God. We're not told that these two became irrevocably uh, drawn apart. But we do know that something happened on Calvary that was born by the Son of God that caused him to cry out to his God, his Father, with whom he had a permanent and exclusive relationship. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And so, by submitting himself to the death on the cross at the hands of a holy and righteous judge, we have been... Reconcile. Number three, in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. This is the purpose of reconciliation. The purpose of reconciliation is, is so that, number one, you are able to be holy. And the sense of holiness here is that of purity, of being pure, of being without taint. Number two, you are able to be blameless. That's without blemish. There's no stain in your life. And number three, you're able to be above reproach, free from accusation. And so that tremendous state in which we are brought as part of the reconciliation process is brought about because of the work of Jesus Christ, which he did on Calvary's cross, which ultimately caused him to die and be be raised from the dead and in post-resurrection glory. And by the power of the Holy Spirit, he he, he builds the church, he becomes head of that church, and so that church is uh, resident in Christ as we continually walk a life that is fulfilled in a life reconciled to God. But verse 23 is a, a striking verse. and In fact, verse 23 is at the heart of this epistle, and verse 23 opens the door to the rest of the epistle as we get there. It says this in verse 23, If indeed... You continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you, regard, that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. The, 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 the clause that introduces us, this conditional clause, is, has brought concern to many who have looked at this. The first part of this verse. If indeed you continue, the faith stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, functions as a call for the Colossian believers to be faithful to the gospel they have received. This conditional statement, if indeed you continue, is directly linked to the purpose of reconciliation in verse 22. The reason why we are reconciled? So that we are able to live in this way. And we are required... To live in this way. This doesn't come automatically. Otherwise you would not be a conditional clause. Verse 23 has in view the ultimate outcome. Of a sanctified life. Lived by faith. We all want to peer at the beamer without shame. That's what we strive for. We all want to receive the commendation. Of the good and faithful servant. We all want to be able to present gold. And silver and precious stones. And not wood. Hay and stubble. Or as Paul says in verse 22, to present your body holy and blameless and above reproach before him. That, verse 22, is a result of a reconciled life to God because of the work of Christ. Paul says this will only happen on condition that, positively, you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast. In Colossians chapter 2 verse 6, he's going to say it this way, Therefore, as you receive Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him, and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. And number two, stated negatively, we do not shift from the gospel. A possibility that Paul is addressing right here in his epistle, and we get to chapter 2, verse 8 and onwards, he talks about them not being um, confused and drawn away by the philosophies of the day. So, we, we our bodies have been presented blameless. Uh, holy and above reproach before him because of reconciliation, and for us to maintain that condition, it's required that we continue in the faith, stable and steadfast. We find ourselves in these times where this becomes more pertinent day by day. It's hard to walk this way. It's hard to walk in a way that desires to be pure. So much comes into our lives that is impure. So much comes into our lives that's impure because we choose to go down certain roads. So much comes into our lives that's impure because we are in the wrong place at the wrong time, and sometimes it just comes into our lives, into our vision, into our into our into our circle for the day because somewhere online uh, something has been following us in a very uh, mundane way, and so impurity comes into our lives through the eyes, and we hear through the ears and we experience it in our lives, and so it's hard to walk this way. But today we need to walk this way more than ever before. Not only is our personal faith being tested at every level, but our firm footing on the faith, that which we believe and in whom we believe, is being constantly undermined and eroded. And it's being eroded by things where we have become soft, and we've become accommodating to, and become tolerant to, and made allowances for, I choose what I do with my own body. When we do not resist that, either verbally uh, articulating it to those who claim that or show it in our own lives, when we give in to that kind of thinking, then we have jettisoned the faith. We are no longer being faithful to the life to which we have been called. When we talk about, uh, about things like uh, wokeness where we must consider other people more than we consider God. When we think about what we heard this morning about finding our own truth of finding our own salvation, of being a better us. All those things become part of our lives and our language some way or another if we are not careful, if we are not standing firm on the faith, if we do not continue in the faith, stable and steadfast. The days we're living in is is weak. It's quicksand. It changes on a daily basis. And we are unable to almost keep up with the changes and then in our minds formulate why we are different. We are being caught off God. We are being caught out of, out of sync. And sometimes we concede just because we do not have a better answer. We should have a better answer. We have the faith. It's the faith which is the firm footing on which we stand. And we need to continue in this faith as we honor the one who reconciled us to God, to our Father, and to our Creator. Verse 23, which has been proclaimed in all creation, the gospel, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which Paul, which I, Paul, have become a minister. Two points in closing. The gospel that uh, Colossians believe, believers heard and responded to was no small story. Its purpose was and is to impact all of creation. The gospel is just not about you and me being saved. The gospel is about you and me living a life, that's reflective of God's work in alliance. So, in some small measure, the reconciliation that we reflect is indeed a measure of the reflection of the reconciliation of the all of creation to God. And God will reconcile all things to himself. There's going to come a day when every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Even those who reject Him, those who fight Him, those who will not ab- obey Him, those who deny Him, everyone will be reconciled either in joy or kicking and screaming. And ultimately, that same state will be how they go into eternity. Those who have come because of the reconciliation of Calvary and of his blood come with joy, singing songs of praise, casting crowns at his feet, and being in a place where we will want to be even today. And those who come kicking and screaming and shaking their fist at God will end up in hell doing exactly the same thing kicking and screaming and shaking the fist at God. But the gospel that the Colossian believers heard and responded was no small story. All of creation will be restored. And ultimately, this world will pass away. It will be destroyed in fire. The heavens will be consumed and God will make a new heaven and a new earth. Stop trying to save the world. You're wasting your time. You're wasting your money. You're wasting your efforts. This will all be burnt up. The gospel that the Colossian believers heard and respond to was no small fright. its purpose was to impact all creation. We have seen earlier that not only people are in need of reconciliation to a preeminent creator, but so does all creation. At the heart of this reconciliation is the proclamation of the gospel. When we preach the gospel, not only are individualized change, but so is the whole world. Number two, in closing, Paul identifies himself with the gospel so that they could see that he was not the kind of leader who lives by this dictum, do as I say, don't do as I do. Paul said, and Paul did, exactly what he told others to do and say. Paul set the example of preaching and living by the gospel so they could be confident that his motives were pure and without malice towards them. Unlike the false teachers in the midst, who Paul will challenge very soon. There were people in the midst who had their ears, who captured their minds, who was drawing away the hearts, who they thought were their friends. There were people in the midst who were dragging them away from the solid foundation of the faith, and they thought that they were on on a good footing. But they were not. Those people bore malice toward them, for they were drawing them away from Christ. But Paul bears no malice to a church he has not seen, and he says to them, don't do as others do, do as I do, and do as I say. So Paul identifies himself with the gospel that he... Exhorts them to not only respond to but to live by, and by doing this, Paul sets up the next section of his epistle, which expands into his ministry in the church in verses 24 onwards. And so, Paul has done this again, he ends this very portion with introducing himself. And the next section from 24 onwards, we're going to see how he is a minister in the gospel and how others have benefited from his service. Not because you are seeking to build churches to add to his. A portfolio. He was seeking to simply live the gospel, teach the gospel, exemplify the gospel so that those who followed him could do exactly the same. Remember, he says, be imitators of me as I am of Christ. And so as we imitate him and ultimately imitate Christ, we enjoy the life of reconciliation. Reconciled to a God who is not now a judge over us, but a loving Father waiting to receive us whenever He deems it fit to call us into glory. Let us pray. Father, we thank You that we are able to open Your Word and to simply be encouraged by the words of the Apostle. Realize, Lord, that the days we're living in is no different to the days of the Colossian Church. Some details may differ. Some things may look different on the surface. But at Deep down in the hearts of men, we are all sinners. And from this soil of sinful men, you have saved some. And you have built a church. And now as a church, Lord, we continue to walk this walk. A walk of faith, not by sight. A walk based on the stable and solid foundation of the gospel, not our own imagination. And a walk that follows the steps of Christ, who loved us and gave himself for us. We say these things for His sake and for His glory alone. Amen.